0: Hi, dreamers. This episode is going to be a little bit different because I'm going to touch on a couple different things in regards to last weekend's episode. I had a different bonus planned, but I've put that on hold until next week, and this is kind of causing me to fall behind a little bit. So hopefully Sunday's episode will be ready in time. And I think it will be, but that's just a heads up just in case. Okay, so this week... We talked about the death of Oog de la Plaza, and I am, as always, absolutely pleased with the feedback I received from everyone, positive or otherwise. I had one listener in particular, and I did post about it in the Facebook group, point out that I was incorrect and outlandish in making the sweeping generalization that suicide by stabbing is rare. And moreover, that what I said was blatantly untrue. Reflecting back on what I said, I did say, quote, who stabs themselves to death, unquote. Well, that statement right there may not have been the best way to word what I wanted to get across, and it may have seemed insensitive, and for that, I extend my apologies. I do not want to in any way diminish the tragedy when somebody takes their own life. So with that, I'm going to quickly address some of the statements I made regarding suicide and stabbing. I was repeatedly asked what my sources were and regarding a variety of statements I made in the Oog de la Plaza episode. So I'm going to go over some of those points right now. I said suicide by stabbing is rare. According to LostAllHope.com, methods of suicide are broken down as follows. Suicide by firearms makes up 50.9% of all suicides. Suffocation slash hanging, 24.8%. Poisoning, 16.6%. Fall, 2.3%. Cut slash piercing, 1.8%. Other, 1.2%. Drowning, 1.1%. Transportation related, 0.4%. Fire slash burning, 0.4%. Okay, so stabbing, which falls under the category of cut slash piercing, is 1.8% of all suicides in the United States. And fire slash burning is even more rare. So... I feel as though I was accurate in my assessment when I stated suicide by stabbing is rare. I think I even said that most of those are a cut to the wrist or to the throat, not so much as a stabbing like Oog had suffered. So just to be thorough, I took a look at suicide statistics in the United Kingdom. Just for argument's sake, let's take a look at a country where firearms aren't available to the masses. As they are in the United States, according to the same website, lostallhope.com, suicide by hanging/suffocation makes up 51.7% of all suicides. Drug-related poisoning, 20.3%. Other/slash unspecified, 7.6%. Fall from a moving object, 4%. Drowning. Jumping from a high place, 3.5%. Sharp objects, 3.1%. Exposure to gases, 2.2%. Firearms, 1.8%. Smoke slash fire slash flames, 1.5%. Pesticides slash chemicals, 0.3%. Crashing a motor vehicle, 0.2%. So again, while not the most uncommon in the United Kingdom, suicide by sharp object, not even necessarily a stabbing, makes up 3.1% of all suicides. I still find that to be a rare manner of suicide. Not the rarest, but rare nonetheless. I did inject my opinions about murders as a result of a stabbing, just based on my own experiences and following crime stories. What this does is leave the forum up to you guys to school me about what you've seen. When I say stuff like, it seems difficult to stab someone to death, that's an opinion. I'm not stating facts. But I have based my opinion on a few things articles I read about stabbings, necessary force, and grades of knives. I read several studies about knives and how the ability to murder someone with a knife and the amount of force it takes in order to effectively pierce a victim's body with a knife is dependent on a number of factors involving the grade, quality, durability, and sharpness of the knife. I also read a couple of articles about The nature of the state of mind of a person who chooses stabbing as their method of murder. Why do people pick stabbing? Ease of access to knives? Is it because it's quieter than a gun? Is it because it's personal? While researching Ugg's case, I read an article about what sets those who choose a knife over a gun says about them. Have you guys heard that when a person commits a murder that involves physically connecting with the victim, such as strangulation or stabbing, that it often speaks to a high level of anger and rage, with usually a personal connection to the victim? I've heard that too, and that's because it's based on things forensic psychologists have come to determine when studying these close quarters types of murders. You've heard it said it's personal, there's a connection. It's provocative. It's visceral. There is a markedly high level of emotion that goes along with these types of killings that just isn't present when a murder is committed with a firearm. So then I started thinking about some of the bigger cases that all of us are very, very familiar with, like the stabbing deaths of Travis Alexander by Jody Arias or Kitty Genovese by Winston Mosley or Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman by O.J. Simpson. These were stabbings, right? And knowing what we know about each of these cases, especially the ones where we've been able to see detailed pictures of the crime scenes, I formulated an opinion that to stab someone might not be that simple. If you think it's easy to stab someone to death, enlighten me. My opinion isn't the end-all. I can't speak from personal experience because I've never stabbed someone, nor have I been stabbed. And I've also come to think that it seems difficult to stab someone to death because it's possible to be stabbed a whole bunch of times and survive. And if the intent was to kill, then certainly a great deal of effort was put forth all for naught. The fact that I've never seen a stabbing suicide in any case that I've ever read or watched anything about doesn't mean that it never happened. I just have never seen a case where it happened. If you have, great. Jump on social media and tell me about it. I'm all ears. A couple of you guys, including the listener who emailed me about all this, brought up singer-songwriter Elliot Smith. His is a more questionable case of whether or not it was suicide or homicide, and I believe it still officially hasn't been settled as to which it is. I'm not going to get into a debate about whether or not his death was a suicide or not, but it certainly seems more plausible because there was another person present at the death scene, and her fingerprints were on the knife, as she claims to have been the one to pull it out of his chest when she discovered him stabbed his case still doesn't bolster my opinions about suicides by stabbings. Even if it was a suicide, it hasn't been proven as such, and it may never be. And if his death were to ever be ruled definitively a suicide, it would still fall into the category of an extremely rare manner of suicide. Maybe we can delve into that case sometime in the near future. I didn't look too deep into his case before I started writing this bonus because there is another case a listener brought up to me that I wanted to take a look at today. It's another unsolved case out of San Francisco that involves a stabbing. Many times when I'm researching a story, I look at different articles and I formulate an opinion. I just rattled off a bunch of statistics, and that was probably actually really boring to listen to. Instead of sitting here and droning on and on and on into the mic, a bunch of numbers and percentages, I take the part that I need for my story, in this case, Oog's death, I read online that statistically, stabbing suicides are rare, and I turn around and I told you that. If I had to read stats off for everything you and I talked about, I think we'd all be bored to tears. When I talk to you guys about a case, I just don't think you want me to beat you over the head with a bunch of statistics, percentages, graphs, and pie charts. I do very much appreciate this feedback, and I do want to be accountable for what I say. So when I convey my opinion, I almost always state those things in such a way that it is clear that it's my opinion and my opinion alone. And I will always say stuff like, I think, or it seems to me, or if you ask me, or I don't know, what do you guys think? Always. If not for our individual opinions, what would be the point of being here on social media and discussing and debating? So, with that being said, if I make a statement, such as, for example, suicide by stabbing is rare, obviously I frame that as a fact. And when I do, it's because I did research on it and I came to the conclusion that it's an actual fact. And if I find a fact that I am unsure of, I will say stuff like, I don't know if this is a fact or not, or one article speculated this, blah, blah, blah. I like to think I've been crystal clear about what is fact, what's been speculated about, and what my opinions are. And of course, dreamers, your opinions are always, always welcome. Okay, moving on now. So, like I said, a listener named Tony. Hi, Tony. Thanks for the recommend. He mentioned a case that has some eerie similarities to Oog's case. And it's important because it is still unsolved. The victim's name is Philip DiMartino. He was killed on or around July 30th, 2010, inside his apartment. Now, what makes this case similar to Oog's is a couple of things. First. Philip lived in the same Hayes Valley neighborhood as Oog. Also, he was stabbed to death, for sure, in a homicidal way. There's no doubt about that. The DNA of the killer is believed to have been left behind at the scene. Philip's apartment was also locked when he was discovered dead, and investigators have said that there does not appear to be any signs of forced entry. So what does that mean? That maybe Philip was familiar with the person who attacked him? It kind of seems possible since the person didn't break in. Maybe Philip left his door unlocked and someone came in randomly? I don't know, I kind of like the acquaintance theory. But the thing about that is, if the killer was someone Philip knew and was comfortable with, and that person left their DNA behind, wouldn't the killer likely be someone in Philip's personal or social circles? There is so little information out there about his case, and I haven't read anything that said that all of Philip's known friends, family, and co-workers have submitted DNA samples for testing and all have been eliminated as to a match to the DNA found at the scene. And if it wasn't someone who was a regular in Philip's life, if it was someone he had just met or was getting to know or connected with online, there should have been a digital trail of all that stuff, shouldn't there? But again, there's no information out there as to the investigation into Philip's communications leading up to his murder. I have to say that I think this is why I often shy away from unsolved and open investigation cases like this, because there really isn't enough for me to talk about for an hour with you guys. Unless it's a case like Oogs and it's kind of unsolved, but police have kind of ruled the death a suicide. So the police department is finding that they need to openly speak to the media about their investigation so they can defend their findings. And even beyond that, there is a great deal of controversy surrounding Ooh's case. And family and friends are being outspoken about the case. And all the details are out there for everyone to see. Then I have lots to talk about. In Uke's case, there was almost too much information to talk about. But for Philip, sadly, not so much. But I totally get it. They can't divulge too much. Things have to be kept close to the vest so they don't jeopardize their investigation. We've seen that happen. Things getting out into the media, mucking up a case. Oh, I have a good example. You guys remember Richard Ramirez, right? the serial killer from California, the other night stalker. Well, some of you may remember the time when the mayor of San Francisco, Dianne Feinstein, gave that infamous press conference when she addressed the citizens of San Francisco about the then-unidentified serial killer. She said, quote, This is a very serious situation. This killer goes into homes at night and kills at random. Somewhere in the Bay Area, someone is renting a room or an apartment or a home to this vicious killer. I'm hoping that people will look at this composite drawing, unquote. Then she proceeded to hold up the sketch of the suspect. Then she announced the mayor's office was offering up a $10,000 reward for information leading to the killer. But... Diane Feinstein didn't stop there. Much to the chagrin of the San Francisco Police Department, she started talking about how the ballistics used in the San Francisco crimes matched the ballistics to the gun used in two murders in Los Angeles. She then also brought up the brand and size of the shoe prints left at the crime scenes, a size 11 and a half of VIA brand sneakers. Are you cringing? I am too. I do every time I think about that press conference. One officer was reported to have said, well, there goes the gun into the bay. As it would turn out, that wasn't exactly what happened, but close. Ramirez was watching that press conference, and most of you can likely presume what he did. If you guess that he took a stroll out to the center of the Golden Gate Bridge and Toss those size 11 1⁄2 of VIA sneakers right into the bay. You'd be right. He didn't toss the gun, though. Thanks, Diane Feinstein, for showing everyone what not to do. So, sorry I sidetracked again, but that is a perfect example of why police won't divulge details. You can't tip the killers off to what you know. I'm looking at you, Senator. OK, so back to Philip. He wasn't found until August 2nd, 2010, when his coworkers became worried when he failed to show up for work. There are several differences in Philip's case. Most glaringly is that he was stabbed inside his apartment, and he was stabbed 48 times in the back. Even though investigators have very little say about Philip's case because it's an ongoing investigation, They did reveal that they had that DNA evidence, but they weren't specific as to what the source of the DNA actually was, whether it's hair or skin or blood or otherwise. But investigators have said that it appears very likely that the killer was injured, possibly having a cut on the hand when committing the murder, but they wouldn't state much more than that they are continuing to follow up on all leads that come up. The mayor's office has offered up a $25,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the killer, but so far, no one has come forward with any viable information. One detail that was divulged in the medical examiner's report in Phillip's case is that there were a couple of notes found in Phillip's living room that were written in Spanish, leading some to speculate that perhaps the suspect is Hispanic. But again, investigators would not discuss what the notes said, if they pointed to any motive, or if they were perhaps written by Philip himself or someone else. It's been speculated, kind of like how I speculated in Oog's case, that perhaps Philip met up with someone or had a date that went wrong. But police would neither confirm nor deny that either. The victim's sister, Lisa DiMartino, has said in previous interviews that she thinks Philip had been at the Badlands, a nightclub located in the Castro District. I didn't know what the Castro District was, so I looked it up. And the district has quite a rich and interesting history. According to the sfgate.com, the area used to be dairy farms and dirt roads, but now is one of the most popular and vibrant communities in San Francisco. It remained a relatively quiet, working-class neighborhood following World War II. But as the 60s and 70s approached, gay men began purchasing some of the old Victorian homes at bargain prices, and soon this neighborhood was named after its busiest thoroughfare, Castro Street. And with the strong support and activism of that period of time, a community was built with tremendous political and economic strength. And with that came a place for residents of the area to feel safe in the predominantly gay community. And following that up with the assassination of openly gay San Francisco Supervisor Harvey Milk and the impact the AIDS epidemic was having on the Castro District community, it brought its residents together even more so. Everyone was an advocate for everyone else in the community. The Castro District wasn't just a place to be openly gay, but... It was a place that celebrated the gay and lesbian population. So today, the Castro District is a tourist destination that is busy on any given day, but really comes to life at night, and is considered a relatively safe place. So, as I was saying, Philip's sister believes that he had gone to a nightclub the same night that he was murdered. And yes, Philip was gay. So, what could have happened? I would like to think that the San Francisco Police Department did their due diligence when investigating Phillip's murder. I was kind of curious, though, as to the nature of the relationship between the SFPD and the gay community. And what I found was somewhat troubling. I read an article on QWERTY.com from 2016 that reported an alarming number of racist and anti-gay text messages that were being exchanged between several San Francisco Police Department officers. The article also said that the texting scandal began when 14 SFPD officers were called out for exchanging those racist and homophobic texts with one another between 2014 and 2015, and that a year later, five more officers were found to be exchanging offensive text messages, often using the N-word, as well as derogatory language directed towards the LGBTQ community. What caught my attention is what San Francisco District Attorney George Gascon had to say about it. He said, quote, It is horrifying from a purely operational standpoint. Here we go again having to spend a lot of time trying to figure out how many cases have been impacted. On a moral level, it is also horrifying because it shows that racial and homophobic bias is impacting the quality of the administration of justice, Okay, when I read what the district attorney had to say about this, this overwhelming sadness came over me thinking about Philip's case. He was murdered in 2010. The racism and homophobia wasn't really uncovered and dealt with until after 2014 or 2015. So that means Philip's death happened on that watch, where homophobic cops were rampant on the San Francisco police force. Is it possible they brushed Philip's death aside because he was gay? could that possibly be the thing, the reason why this is unsolved? It's really hard to wrap my head around that. Allowing a violent killer to roam free in the community that trumps solving a murder case all because the victim was gay? I probably wouldn't even thought of that as a possibility in Phillip's case if I hadn't read that article about the scandal surrounding the SFPD. So... It's closing in on eight years since Philip was murdered. If anyone has any information regarding the murder of Philip DiMartino, you're asked to call the homicide unit at area code 415 553 1145. The anonymous tip line is 415 575 4444. You can text the tip to And type SFPD and then your message. And as for Oog de la Plaza, his one hundred thousand dollar reward still stands today. I visited his parents' blog at OogdeLaPlaza.blogspot.com, and there hasn't been much activity there since two thousand nine, when the blog was posted. Anyone with information regarding Oog's death can call eight hundred nine eight nine. Seven five five one. His parents, Francois and Marielle de la Plaza, I feel so terrible for them. They have their mailing address listed there as well. If anyone who has information wants to contact them directly, they can do so anonymously. Thank you all so much for bearing with me as I rambled all over the place at the beginning of this bonus episode. I know many of you listening get me, and I want to get all of you too. I'm so very open to hearing your opinions and ideas, theories, suggestions, ideas, criticisms, all of that. And I appreciate everyone who reaches out to me to challenge me and to get me to think and to keep me accountable for what I say. And if I'm wrong, I can own that and I'll be the first one to make it right. I love all of you guys out there listening so much, and I appreciate every single one of you. Thank you always, always, always for listening. And until next time, sweet dreams.